remember one time also with Juice, 10 people, I think, sent me the same article. I thought, oh boy, what's this telling me? And it was this article that said people would rather have a boss who's a total asshole than one who's really nice but incompetent. And I thought, are they sending me this because they think I'm an asshole or because they think I'm incompetent? Welcome to Open, Honest, and Direct, a podcast sharing stories from powerful leaders on what it takes to unlock your team's potential. In each episode, we'll take a behind-the-scenes look at how to build a high-performing team from the leaders who built them. Today, we were lucky to have Kim Scott, author, entrepreneur, and all-around badass. Prior to writing her New York Times best-selling book, Radical Candor, Kim was a senior leader at Google, a faculty member at Apple University, and also served as a coach to the CEOs of Dropbox, Qualtrics, Twitter, and several other tech companies. In today's conversation, we go in several different, yet very connected directions, from her experience working in Russia after the fall of the Berlin Wall, to dealing with inappropriate physical touch in the workplace. There's so many gold nuggets in this episode, I know you'll enjoy it. So Kim, thank you for coming on. It's uh, it's a pleasure to have you. I am a, a big personal fan. I read Radical Candor years back and just fell in love with uh, the way in which you talked about how we should live and work in the workplace. And so when we emailed back and forth a few months ago, when you said you come on the podcast, I was really excited and told all of my uh, organizational design friends about this. And they're like, oh, I'm so excited. You're so lucky. So uh, one, thank you for coming on. And it's great to have you here. Well, thanks so much for having me. I, as soon as I saw just the title of your podcast, that you knew I couldn't resist. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was hoping that did it. We're clearly aligned. You know, as I was looking back at your past and kind of your career, and obviously you worked at Google and you worked at Apple and you, you know, you've worked with companies like Qualtrics and Twitter, like you, you've worked with a bunch of big companies, but something that I, that I learned about you just a few days ago was that prior to all that, you worked in Russia just after the fall of the Berlin Wall. Yes, I did. I did. What were you doing there? What was that all about? So I <laughs> studied arms control. You know, when you're 18 years old, often you have kind of a, a dramatic sense of what you can do in the world. And I was going to save the world from nuclear holocaust. And so I studied Russian and I studied Soviet politics. And my senior year, the walls fell, you know, mission accomplished. So what was I going to do next? So I wound up going to Russia to do a paper on military conversion, if you will. So taking these plants that had made tanks and getting them to make tractors going into these factories that were making missiles and helping them start to do space travel. In fact, we negotiated one of the early private equity guys who got blasted into space. So it was really interesting. When I first got there, I was working for a financial management company on the Soviet Companies Fund. And we were going into all these factories and thinking about what else they could do. So this was the peace dividend. It was early days, very optimistic. And then the coup happened, and all of a sudden, we were out. It was no longer the Soviet Union, and the capitalists took over, and they didn't want our help. In fact, they just wanted to sell the missiles because it was more profitable. And I found myself, through a friend of a friend, as all things in life, leading a diamond-cutting factory, starting Is it, it up. Is it still in Russia? It's still there. It's still in Russia. And in fact, that was my first management experience. I was trying to hire these Russian diamond cutters, 
And I thought it was going to be easy because they were paid in rubles, which were worthless. And I had dollars, which were worth a lot. And I felt that was what capitalism was all about. You paid people, right? And wrong. The diamond cutters, they wanted to have a picnic. And when I went on the picnic, we drank a bottle of vodka together and ate a bunch of grilled meat. And it became clear to me what they really wanted was they wanted to know that if everything went to hell in Russia, someone would help them and their families get out because it was very unstable times. And I realized that the thing that I could do that the state couldn't do was not pay them more. It was to give a damn. It was to show them some common human decency and some real personal care and attention. And all of a sudden to me, that was maybe the beginning of my interest in in business and in leadership, because that, that I could do. <laughs> I studied Russian literature in, in college and not, not business or anything like that. So it was very interesting. So that experience got you thinking about business and management and how did that progress into where you've gotten Yeah, how, how, how did it translate? Well, yeah. I decided after four years in Russia, so this was 1990 to 1994, and by 1993, things were getting pretty harsh. One mafia sort of beheaded their rival mafia members and left the heads on stakes in the outskirts of Moscow. Like it was really brutal times. I decided this is not the place for me to build my career. And so I went to business school. That was sort of the beginning. And I, after business school, I worked at the FCC, at the Federal Communications Commission for a year. I was definitely the only person in my class at Harvard Business School to join the federal government afterwards. It was a very interesting experience, but also very frustrating. You just couldn't get anything done. So I left the federal government and joined a startup and got a lot of important lessons at that early startup. I remember at one point they did layoffs at that startup. And one of the leaders of the company after the layoffs came in and sort of tried to exhort everyone. First of all, they did not a good job. It's the hardest thing about leadership, the hardest thing about being a manager is firing people. And they did not do a good job. And that was another instance where I realized, you know, leadership really matters. It matters how you do this. And then the, the, the guy came in and exhorted us all to be excited, be in, like, this was not the time to tell people how to feel. It was the time to understand that they felt terrible because their colleagues and their friends had just been laid off. And what he needed to do was come in and have some empathy for how everybody felt. So that was another early lesson where I thought, you know, this leadership business management, it really matters. It matters to people's lives and it, it matters to productivity. It matters at an emotional level and it matters at a, at a moral level and it matters at a practical level as well. That was an interesting experience. And, and I sort of decided at the end of that, that the solution was for me to be the boss. If I were in charge, everything would be great. <laughs> <laughs> and so I started my own company. And unfortunately, I wound up learning that I was making a lot of the same mistakes that other people were making, that other people, other bosses I had had made. In fact, one of the most painful experiences at this Juice Software was the name of the company I started. And I hired this guy there, we'll call him Bob. And I liked Bob a lot. He was smart, he was charming, he was funny. By the way, this is a compilation of people. So if you're listening and you're trying to figure out who Bob is, don't. 
Uh, but anyway. He's not a real person. He's it's a bunch well, of real it's, Yeah, it's, it's a combination of a bunch of different experiences. So anyway, he would do stuff like we were at a manager offsite. We were all playing one of those endless get-to-know-you games. And we were at a stressful time in the company's history. And nobody really felt that they had the time or the inclination to be playing this game right at that moment. And Bob was the guy who had the courage to say, look, I really like you all. I want to get to know you. But this is stressful. This is a stressful time. And this is not helping. I have an idea. It's going to be really fast. Whatever it was, his idea, we, were, we agreed to do it. And he said, let's just go around the table and tell each other what candy our parents used when potty training us. Really weird, but really fast. We did it. And then, weirder yet, we all remembered, for the next 10 months, every time there was a tense moment in a meeting, Bob would whip out just the right piece of candy for the right person at the right moment. So anyway, Bob was kind of one of those people who's fun to have around. There was one problem with Bob, though. He was doing terrible work. Absolutely terrible work. I was so puzzled because he had this incredible resume, came with this great history of accomplishments. Uh, I learned much later the problem was that Bob was smoking pot in the bathroom four times a day, which maybe explained all that candy. <laughs> but anyway, uh, I didn't know any of that at the time. All I knew is there was shame in his eyes when he would hand stuff in to me. So I would say something to him along the lines of, Bob, I was trying to buck him up. Bob, you're so great. You're so awesome. You're so smart. Everybody loves working with you. This is a great start. Maybe you can make it a little better. Of course, he never did. And this goes on for 10 months. And eventually, the inevitable happens. And I realize I'm going to lose all my top performers if I don't get rid of Bob. Mm. So I sat down to have a conversation with Bob that I should have, frankly, started 10 months previously. And when I finished explaining to him how things stood, he kind of pushed his chair back from the table he looked at me right in the eye and he said, why didn't you tell me? And as that question is going around in my head with no good answer, he says to me, why didn't anyone tell me? I thought you all cared about me. And now I realize just trying to be nice, I'm firing Bob, not so nice after all. And I have made six really big management mistakes. The first two mistakes I made were I failed to solicit either praise or criticism from Bob. The kind of praise I gave him, I didn't know. I failed to solicit. So I didn't know what was going well from Bob's point of view. And I also didn't know why or what was going badly from Bob's point of view. I didn't know what I might be doing. Maybe I was doing something that was driving poor old Bob so crazy, he was forced to toke up in the bathroom. <laughs> I don't know, because I never asked him. I never solicited either praise or criticism. And more importantly, I never solicited criticism from Bob. The second two mistakes I made were that I failed to give Bob praise or criticism. That was good. I mean, the kind of praise I gave him was really just a head fake. So that was mistake number three. And I never told Bob when his work wasn't nearly good enough, mistake number four, right? And probably worst of all, the last two mistakes I made were that I failed to create the kind of environment in which everyone would give Bob praise and criticism, in which everyone in the organization would tell Bob when his work was really great and would also tell Bob when he was going off the rails. 
And because I had made all these different mistakes, I'm now having to fail to fire Bob because of it. Again, not so nice after all. But it was too late to save Bob at this point. Even Bob agreed now that he saw the whole picture that he should go. All I could do in that moment was make myself a very solemn promise that I would never make that mistake again. And that's really why I wrote the book and why I came up with the Radical Candor Framework and why I'm talking to you now because these mistakes are so common and so painful. It was painful for me. It was worse for Bob, obviously, much worse for Bob. And it was painful for the whole team over the course of 10 months. And yet, whenever I've managed teams, I've watched people make this same mistake over and over and over again. In some days, it feels like watching a slow motion train wreck and being powerless to stop it. So I hope this, uh, I hope the conversation can help people avoid making that mistake I made. I mean, I think so. And it's, it's interesting because, you know, the people who listen to this, the people who read your book, who read my book and, and who are curious and want to be better leaders or want to, when they get in that position, as you said, like now, if I'm the boss, I'll take care of it. You know, it's not necessarily the intentions that are bad. It's the execution that's poor, right? It's the difficulty of telling somebody you're not doing a good job or you're missing here and here. And it's, you know, one of the, the key themes I heard from yours is that I failed to realize that feedback was a gift. If I didn't give Bob that gift, then I have to be a jerk along the way and fire him. And he said, why don't you care? Right? Like, I thought you cared about me. Yeah. Um, and I did care about him. I mean, that's the painful part about it. I think especially, I mean, in a lot of aspects of life, but especially when you become a leader of some sort, you feel like there, you have a there's this false dichotomy in our minds. We're either a jerk or we're effective. And I remember one time also at Juice, 10 people, I think, sent me the same article. I thought, oh boy, what's this telling me? And it was this article that said people would rather have a boss who's a total asshole than one who's really nice but incompetent. And I thought, are they sending me this because they think I'm an asshole or because they think I'm a <laughs> And surely those are not my two choices. I think it's tempting to feel like those are your two choices and they're not. And that's another reason why I wrote Radical Candor. So I think the essence of Radical Candor is to care personally at the same time that you do challenge directly. And I think for a lot of us, this challenge directly dimension of leadership is really hard because we've been told since we learned to speak, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. And now congratulations, it's your job to say it. And this is really hard. It's hard to overcome training that's been pounded into your head since you learned to speak. So that's part of why it's hard, but it's also hard because I think a lot of people don't realize that part of their job at work as a leader is to show that they do care about other people. I think around the time we're 18, 19 years old, we're right at that moment when our egos are so fragile and our personas are beginning to solidify and somebody comes along and says, be professional. And I think for an awful lot of us, that gets translated to mean leave your emotions, leave your real identity, leave your humanity at home and show up at work like some kind of robot. You can't possibly care personally about others if you're showing up at work like some kind of robot. And, you know, I wonder if it starts even sooner now that you mentioned it, because one of the things that I've explored is that 
when you're three or you're four and the, you, th- you see three or four year olds who are asking, why this? What about that? Mommy? Th-? And, and then eventually we start to say to your kids, you know what, that's not an appropriate question or, or yeah. society, you know, it's like, it's not okay to ask in public. You can ask at yeah. home. Yeah. And we start to kind of tamp down curiosity in ourselves. And so by the time we're 18, 19, we don't even know what it's like to be curious again. How does curiosity play into this role of showing you care and being a better leader? It's vital. Curiosity is such an important part. I think really curiosity, it plays into both dimensions of radical candor. It, it allows you to show you care, but curiosity is also crucial to allowing you to challenge others, to challenge directly in a way that is humble, in a way that is supportive. Can you tell me more about that? So I think very often when you see as a leader, you see somebody doing something that you think is wrong. It's tempting to go in thinking, I know what's good and bad. I know what's right and wrong. Let me tell you the truth. You're not really being very curious if you're telling somebody the truth. There's a reason why I call it radical candor and not something about truth. Because if you start a conversation, I'm going to tell you the truth. You're kind of implying I've got a pipeline to God and you don't know shit from Shinola. And that's not a great way to start a conversation or exhibit curiosity. So I think if you go in challenging directly, but with a mindset, like I'm gonna tell you this thing and I'm gonna tell you exactly what I think. I'm gonna be very candid, but not because I'm certain that I'm right. I'm gonna give you this gift and it's gonna be a gift in one of two ways. Either it's a gift because I am right and by telling you about this problem, I'm gonna help you fix it and help myself understand why the problem became a problem in the first place or It's a gift because I'm wrong. And only by telling you what I think and getting curious about what you think, do I give you the opportunity to change my mind about this situation. So I think being curious about what's going on, why it's going on, and whether or not you yourself are right is vital. I think also going back to this sort of tamping down curiosity in kids from a young age, We also tamp down candor in children from a young age because kids really, they do say some incredibly harsh things. (laughs) (laughs) And teaching them what to say and what not to say in public is really complicated. And so it's tempting to resort to some sort of very simple rubric like, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. In fact, when my children were two, so they were right at that age, you know, you'd go out in public with them and they'd point and comment on someone's physical appearance or whatnot. And it was, it's embarrassing, you know, and it's tempting to just shut them up. Also, it reflects badly on you. Like, what are you teaching them at home that they would say this? I found myself being very tempted to say, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. But meanwhile, I was teaching leadership at Apple and I was every day saying, we screw up because we're told from a young age, if you don't have anything, it was kind of a crazy moment for me psychologically. And I really learned to work on, first of all, being as open to feedback from my children as I was from my colleagues and employees teaching them that they could tell me, but that they had to try to tell me in a way that wasn't cruel. It's like when I think about radical candor or being open, honest, and direct, it's, you, gotta, you still have to do it with tact and grace. Yeah. I can't just 
blow out on the scene and blurt completely. Although that blurting is a vital insight that comes to you, but if you, you have to, as you said, deliver it with a little bit of tact and grace and deliver in a way that's nice. Yeah, I think kind maybe is a better word than nice because yeah. nice often implies not saying anything at all, at least to me, to me it does. I think it's important to remember there's sort of an order of operations here for radical candor. And it all begins with soliciting feedback, with understanding, being curious, as you said, about what's going on for the other person in this situation. I think very often one of the things that happens is because we're reluctant to offer criticism about something or just to share something that's bothering us, it bothers us more and more and more and more. And pretty soon it's all we can see is what's bothering us. So being able, especially if you've gotten to a point in a relationship where someone's driving you batshit crazy, you know, and that happens to all of us at work, you want to take a step back and try to understand the situation from the other person's perspective. And this doesn't have to take hours and hours and hours. I'm not talking about something that's a giant process that's going to cost a lot of money or take a lot of time to roll out. It does, however, take enormous emotional discipline. So when you're really bothered by something someone's doing, taking a moment to genuinely say, what could I do or stop doing that would make it easier to work with me, right? Sort of being curious about what you might be doing that's contributing to the situation is really important. And then I think the next thing in order of operations is to focus on the good stuff. Again, very often by the time we've gotten to the point where someone's driving us crazy, we, and that's not a good word, by the way, I've gotten feedback on this, where someone is really bothering us. Yeah. I don't mean to be insensitive to, to issues of mental health because I've struggled with depression at times in my life as well. So when you get to the point that someone is really bothering you or some situation is really top of mind for you, you want to make sure that you take a step back just for a moment but focus on the things that you genuinely appreciate about working with that person and give voice to them. Then you're in a better frame of mind to offer some critical feedback, to express the thing that's bothering you. And you wanna make sure you do that humbly. You wanna make sure you state your intention to be helpful. You wanna make sure you do it right away. Again, the longer you wait, the more it's gonna build up and become toxic. You want to do it whenever possible in person, something like, 85% of communication is nonverbal. And so that's why it's helpful in our conversation that we're looking at each other, even though the listeners can't, can't yeah, see you us. Yeah, you won't see us interacting in this yes. room, but, uh, but yeah, we're, you know, Kim and I are, are connecting and looking at each other and interacting as this. Yeah, so it would, it would be better if we were in person, but if you can't be in person, at least use the technology that we have at our disposal because you wanna see how the other person is responding. So I think that is really important. That, that flow makes sense, right? It's first asking before giving, right? First yeah. receiving before uh, putting on somebody else. And, and I wonder if that plays into your lessons learned, but you shared, I had this idea of I wanted to be the boss so that I could run it better. And then I didn't run it better. And I'm just thinking about the people listening who have the best intentions of running it better, but business is tight or things are busy, what's one tip you would give a new leader or a leader of a team so that they avoided maybe one or two of the pitfalls that you avoided in the early part of your leadership career? I think there's so much pressure 
on leaders to pretend they know more than they do. I think humble leadership, humility is really important to being a great leader. And it's counterintuitive because so much of what you see in the media or what you, what, what you read is like this brash person kind of bullying their way to the top. You're not going to be a great leader in, in that kind of situation. I also think it's not just being humble about the business itself. It's also being sort of morally humble. I sort of thought, well, I'm a good person and that will make itself manifest. And I try really hard to be a good person, but I made some mistakes because I thought because I'm good, I will be a good leader. And I made mistakes. Often when you talk about a fixed mindset, and a fixed mindset means I am good at math, therefore I will get this problem right. And you, we often talk about it in terms of, of math or sports or something like that. I think it's really important to have a growth mindset about morality and to realize that even though you are committed to being a good person, you're gonna make some mistakes and you're gonna make some mistakes that hurt other people. And that's much harder to see that, at least for me, than any other mistake that I make. But I think it's really important. What I'm hearing out of this is uh, those leaders taking those roles is to continue to practice recognizing and acknowledging that you might be wrong. Yeah. And you make mistakes along the way. Yeah, you might be wrong in two senses of the word. You might have the wrong answer and you might be doing something that is not good. <laughs> and that's it's not necessarily intentional, right? Yeah. It, it's very well unintentional. I think you have this quote from Steve Jobs in your book where you talk about him telling you, I believe, if I remember correctly, he's like, I don't care about being right. I don't care about being wrong. I care about getting it right. Yes, yes. And that really comes from a video. I, he didn't tell me directly. You too can watch this video. Uh, it's called The Lost Interview. And it's outtakes from the documentary Triumph of the Nerds. And it's great. You can get it on, you can get it on iTunes. I, I'll, put, I'll put that. And I'm also going to put, um, you mentioned kind of fixed mindset versus growth mindset in Carol Dweck's book. Yes. On growth, which is a fantastic book. I think we all should read it. Um, it's something I'm, I'm sure you've learned a lot from, I've learned a lot from. I'll put those uh, in the show notes so people can go watch and listen and, and pay attention to that. Yes. Having a, having a growth mindset is vital to being a good leader and trying to create in your organization a growth mindset and not a fixed mindset. You said something earlier, which made me smile because it's happening to me now a little bit, but I was curious about how being a leader, teaching leadership, writing a book on radical candor, having a company on radical candor, how has that influenced and impacted the way you show up and lead others today? I would like to say that it's made me always radically candid, but it's still a struggle for me. It's really, really hard when you're working with somebody and you're in a moment where either maybe I'm tired and I just feel like, oh, I don't have the energy for this conversation right now. There are so many stories we tell ourselves why we can't possibly say this thing to this person at this moment and why we're going to do it tomorrow, but not right now. And it's still something that I struggle with. I wish, I really wish that I had a perfect and scalable way that we can all change our behavior in this regard. <laughs> And unfortunately, it's emotional discipline. You have to keep trying. I think the thing that has helped me more than anything else is storytelling. 
is hearing stories from other people about how they had a radical candor moment and they expected it to go so badly and then it went way better than they thought. I think nine times out of 10, radical candor works really well. I will be candid that one time out of 10, it's gonna be a train wreck. And not so long ago, I, I went to have lunch with someone I worked with and committed to being radically candid. I forgot to follow my own order of operations. And I jumped into telling him what I thought. I forgot to find out first how he felt about the situation. And all of a sudden, I realized he was trembling with rage. <laughs> and then I was trembling. You know, it was, sometimes you're going to have these train wreck moments. And I think building resilience for those moments is so important, but also forgiving yourself. You're not gonna, it's not always going to go well. And it doesn't mean that you're a disaster or that you necessarily did the wrong thing or had the wrong intentions. Or just, even if you've written a book on how to lead and how to communicate and taught classes on it and, you know, coach CEOs that yeah. then the, the shoulds, don't help you, right? I should be better at this. I should be able to do this, yeah. right? I shouldn't be worried about it. It's still going to be there. Yeah, don't shit all over yourself. Yeah. <laughs> I think when we first started talking, you mentioned I'm in the middle of another book and I knew I wanted to ask you about it and I, I kind of just want to ask you about it now. Could you tell us a little bit about what's the next discussion that you're looking to have with leaders? Sure. So one of the questions that comes up probably most often in radical candor workshops and talks is it's all very well if it's about saying um or spinach in your teeth or results. But what if the issue is gender in the Me Too era or race? What do we do? What do we do in those cases? Because the, these are the situations where we most need to be radically candid and to hear radical candor we're most afraid, and so we're least likely to do it. The most common reason why people are not radically candid is that they fear retribution. And in the case of diversity and inclusion, the fear of retribution is especially high. So a lot of the next book, it's called Radical Courage. For now, it's called Radical Courage, anyway, Confronting Gender Injustice at Work. And I'm trying to sort of break down the sort of atomic building blocks of gender injustice, in my mind, if you will, are bias, belief, and bullying. So sometimes somebody says something and it's, it's just kind of a ham-fisted comment. They don't really think through the implications of what they're saying and they don't mean what they're saying. But there are other times when people say something and they say it because they really believe that women are inferior, for example. <laughs> And that's like a very different thing to deal with. And other times people say something and there's no belief there. They're just trying to bully you. And the, the radically candid response needs to be different depending on which situation you're dealing with. You, you don't want to send the person through the wood chipper in any of these situations, although it may be more tempting in the case of bullying. Versus a bias, yeah. right? An unconscious bias. Yeah, unconscious bias is, is relatively easy to forgive. Like if you really believe that something that, that I find hurtful, it's much harder to forgive and harder to deal with. So I talk about that. And then I talk about what happens when there's power involved, unchecked power and the importance of checks and balances. And then I talk about physical violations and consent and how to create a culture of consent, not, not only around 
having sex, but also just touch. Like a hug can go badly wrong in the office, but I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Sometimes a hug is really a welcome thing in the office. And so how do we learn how to know if it's okay to hug the other person? Okay, can you tell me? I'm a hugger. And yeah. I, I, my instinct is to hug people like they're family. Yeah. What, what do I do? How do I tell? How do I know? I, I could use some tips here. In the case of hugging, you really want to make sure that you know the person well enough to know if, if the hug is welcome or not welcome. So the simple rule is if the other person doesn't want to be touched, don't touch. And if, if you don't know whether or not the other person wants to be touched, get to know them a little bit better. But I also think you don't want to be so, so conservative. Like, I naturally am not a hugger, but I have learned to push myself beyond my comfort levels because I think it really means a lot to some people to get a hug. And so now I I hug a lot more than I used to be comfortable with even. Partly I do that because it's important that warmth, that we bring warmth back into the workplace. Also, I do it in part because as a woman, it's a little bit less risky for me to offer the hug. (laughs) And I think the other thing that's really important with touching at work is if you're in a position of some sort of power, if you're in a position of authority, even if you don't think of yourself as an authority figure, it's really important to realize that just asking, can I hug you? Often people don't feel they have the right to say no. You know, as a woman who isn't naturally always comfortable with being hugged, you can get accused of being cold or being harsh or being, you know, this or that. Just being aware that just asking the question, you're putting someone in an awkward situation. So in general, I guess that's a very long-winded way of saying it. This is super helpful. (laughs) In general, it's better to get to know someone a little bit before you go in for the big hug. Good to know. I appreciate it. My wife is someone who is not a first hugger, so like I, I can use her as, as practice. Do you want to hear an awkward story? Please. I think we um, all want to hear an awkward story. So I'll tell you why I wasn't comfortable with hugging for a long time in my career. Early, early in my career, when I was working in Russia, in fact, I had a boss. Uh, he wasn't my boss, actually. He was my boss's boss, but he had become kind of a mentor he was someone I had really come to trust and something happened in the office and I was upset kind of on the verge of tears. And he came in to give me a hug and the hug went awry, shall we say, (laughs) you know, he got an erection and he grounded into me just to, to be blunt. Oh man. It was awful. It was like such a betrayal of trust. And on the one hand, I don't think he intended for that to happen, but he did not respond well when it did happen. He could have taken a step back and that's not what he did. And so that was why. And I think that kind of thing has happened. I don't mean to make you uncomfortable because I'm sure no, you, this you is, would never do that. But this is, this isn't just about you and I, right? This yeah, is a of course. I mean, we're not even in the same room. Yeah, so this is a conversation for, for understanding, right? And for yeah. learning. I think that's what you're talking about with your book is, right? Understanding the different types of perspectives that could happen yeah. to somebody in the workplace, uh, whether yeah. it's race or age or gender, and then also the kind of language you use around it in response to that to yeah. create this courage and create this conversation for somebody who might, you know, be doing it out of an unconscious bias versus somebody who might be doing it out of bullying. Yeah. And, and also, I think in the case of my boss's boss early in my career, I, I think that kind of thing happens to women 
more often than men who would never do something like that can possibly imagine. That happened to me. And so I was especially sensitive. And then I get accused of being harsh and cold. And I'm like, I'm not harsh and cold. I'm vulnerable. It was so awkward to tell that story. I never told it when I was younger. Like, I didn't even know the words to use as a young professional. And I think young women today are bolder and would just say it. But I, I got to imagine a lot of them would kind of feel the way I felt, even today in the post Me Too era. I mean, I am not a young woman in the workplace, so I can speak for myself <laughs> and my experiences, but um, it doesn't change the fact that there is that power dynamic there, that there is the gender dynamic, which we still have today, even though there's yeah. more awareness, and more conversation about it, doesn't mean it's not happening. It doesn't mean people feel comfortable to speak up. More people have spoken up, and I'm sure there's plenty who haven't. I'm sure that there is this conversation where they don't know if it was wrong, right? You're like, I don't know if he meant it to be bad, but the way he acted afterwards was kind of- right? was definitely <laughs> bad. <laughs> was definitely bad, but what if it's not definitely bad, but close yeah. to that, right? And so yeah. what's that line that you're saying, do I even speak up about this? Yeah, Or who exactly. do I even talk to about this? Yeah, yeah, it's not always clear. And I think sometimes it's a bad moment and you move past it, but it follows you in some sort of way. And so I think be, making sure that you're sensitive to that, uh, even if you're a man who's not in a position of great power, to just realize that there's a few people out there who sort of mess it up for everyone. And just being a little sensitive to the fact that even though you would never do such a thing, there's a small number of men out there who would do such a thing, and they've done it to a lot of women. So a lot of women have had that experience, even though the majority of men would not behave that way. Does that make sense? In total sense. The, the quote that's running through my mind is, uh, is a quote from Jane Goodall that I use in a completely different context, but it's coming to me here, which is what you do makes a difference. Yes. And you have to decide what kind of difference you want to make. So yes. whether you think you're not in a position of power, whether you think you're a woman and you're not going to affect another woman or somebody of a different, whoever you are, wherever you are, what you do makes a difference. And so yeah. conscious, being aware, being thoughtful of that is, is just so important is what I'm hearing from you. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's so important to remember that we all do have agency to make a difference. I think, especially in today's political environment, it's easy to feel like we're helpless victims of this crazy situation we all find ourselves in. And we're not. We can all make a difference. This has been just a really fun, thoughtful, educational conversation for me. So just thank you so much for your time, for your energy. It's been a blast to have you on. I can't wait to share this with others. Really fun. Thank you so much. Want to hear more great stories like this one? Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review. And you can always drop us a note at openhonestanddirect.com. Cheers.